Welcome back to Troubled, a podcast by survivors of institutional abuse for survivors and the general public. As always, from now until forever, there is a heavy trigger and content warning on everything, especially if you're a survivor yourself. Please put your mental health first. Um, I know that I myself, the way I deal with my trauma is to deep dive, binge as much content as I can find. This can be incredibly triggering for me, uh, but it is the way that I deal with things. And sometimes I myself have to take breaks, as you've seen um, with the podcast many times, many times. Please do the same for yourself. Please utilize your support systems. This next episode that you're about to hear was one of the most difficult for me personally, as this is about the program that I was at and the pedophile that we are going to be talking about, who is named and in multiple New York Child Victims Act cases that are open today. And if you were sexually abused at any time by anyone anywhere in the state of New York, you do have a one-time temporary lift on the statute of limitations. The people that you are going to hear from, the Liz's from the family, they are both currently active in cases against our program for being brutally sodomized as children. We will be talking about those subjects. So that's just a just a heads up on the extreme nature in which we talk about a trigger warning. If you listen to episodes two and three of season one of this podcast, My Story, you'll hear about the music man. I personally escaped uh, being a me too in this situation because of the courage and bravery of a 17 year old girl warning me of this pedophile and imploring me to find a way to get out of his choir before I too became a victim. And I owe everything to her. We're still in contact. I love and respect her greatly, greatly. You'll hear all about it if you go listen to those episodes or if you already have. Um, this is the courage of children, you guys. And uh, again, thank you for your support. Please continue to support us. Please share this information. Please help us stop this predator who, for the record, since the closure of the Family Foundation School in Hancock, New York, continued to work with children, to work with church choirs, and to go on and work in education. And this is why we have to continue to chase these people and come forward with our truth over 20 years later for some of these people that you're about to hear from. And this is why it's important. It's not about getting our story out or triggering ourselves by reliving our trauma. It's about saving the children of today and saving the children of tomorrow. And the family school was run by pedos. Uh, He was not the only one. Uh, You've heard of a couple others on our podcast already, but this guy This guy is possibly with a 30-year free reign on children at this program hidden in the mountains is possibly the most prolific predator, pedophile predator. I'm just tripping over the magnitude of this, you guys, since he had absolutely no preference for gender, age, like anything, nothing, no preference at all. Uh, He was just, you know, terrorizing our campus. So if you're still with us, um, please take this at your own risk and and in your own time. And then if you can assist us in moving forward and stopping this and many of the others, please reach out. So um, I'm just pre-apologizing on all the Liz on Liz derp derps that we're about to do for the <laughs> next hour or 10. Um, we've obviously got Liz Ionelli from the family school back here. This is our third family school three-way call. And uh, I'm just going to let Liz Ionelli uh, just uh, intro other Liz. Okay. So today on today's Avengers episode, <laughs> we have Liz Boisek. Uh She uh, is definitely uh, been a friend of mine uh, since we started planting the tree about four years ago. Um, she was the first female sexual assault survivor uh, to come forward um, alongside myself um, in the New York Times article. And she was the first person to um, call out who we will be referring to as the music man. I'm pretty sure that every family school uh, alumni knows who we're talking about, but we're just, mm-hmm. you know, like thou shall not be named. Um, and so to just get a background for what we're doing today, Liz Boisek is being incredibly courageous and coming forward. When we met, Liz was in a space where she was very, um, how do I say it? <laughs> like, like we, we can just like love it out. Everything. Okay. But... <laughs> and, you know, 
she was very quiet and broken and kind of fragmented and suffering. And we ended up um, just by accident disclosing to each other that we both had been brutally sexually assaulted at the family school, but by different um, staff members. And that uh, lit a match that kind of started a wildfire um, and it's been blazing out of control. So Liz has really been kind of the, the, the vanisher member of the Avengers team. Um, she's been a, sh- a shadow warrior for a very long time and behind the scenes. And this is really her coming out uh, party. And she's coming Ooh. out, right, literally to um, somewhat name her abuser, the music man. And she's going to talk about what happened to her and the impact that it had and why she's coming forward now to um, what she wants other survivors to know. And she's going to tell her story and this is real stuff. So there is a trigger warning that's going to come with this podcast in general. Um, But Liz Boisek is a badass and she didn't know it until she found her own voice so you can also check out her Breaking Code of Silence photo that and poster that she put up just last night. Um, so welcome to uh, Music Man. Join the Black Parade. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. We are... uh, I appreciate the, the venue to, to talk about these and very important issues that um, not a lot of people um, really know about, uh, like you said before, a, a lot of um, what people are talking about is, you know, the Catholic Church and Boy Scouts. And, you know, there's a whole group of survivors from the troubled teen industry that are hardly ever acknowledged. And I think it's time that um, we t- discuss, you know, you know, what happened to us and how we're going to move forward and take the power back, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And you two ladies, thank you seriously personally, um, because as a second generation or the next generation from you guys, because I guess you're the middle generation um, of the family school. I before the New York Times article, I literally referred to this as my fancy boarding school in the mountains. You know, uh, (laughs) the cognitive dissonance was real. uh, And this podcast exists, you know, as, you know, a way for me to like hold on and do something with this pain instead of like literally self-destruct. So I do see you guys as lighting that path and, and lighting the way on it. So it's incredible to have this conversation as difficult as it's going to be. So thank you. Well, thank you for holding space for us. So, you know, we can do this and show other survivors what healing looks like. We deserve, as survivors, uh, peace, peace of mind, safety. And um, I feel it's time that we take that back and really show up in force for our brothers and sisters that we lost and for the brothers and sisters that are still suffering and suffering every day. And um, it's unacceptable what our experiences were. And, you know, it's time to hold the troubled teen industry accountable. I'm in. And you're both, yeah, <laughs> obviously, you guys are front and center with the whole New York Supreme Court with the Child Victims Act. Um, how, how, how does one even begin? Like, uh, Liz had mentioned some details on that, so we won't in the last episode, so you guys just check that out. But how, with you guys, when you personally approach this, like, how, how does one begin and what is that journey like? I can't imagine that that's easy. No, it hasn't been easy. Um, I mean, uh, when I came, you know, out the first time in the New York uh, Times article, um, I was new to survivor land. I had no idea what I was getting myself into, but I felt like there's probably hundreds, if not thousands of sexual assault victims from just this one, um, you know, troubled teen program. I came forward um, hoping that it would encourage other survivors to come forward and show, you know, tell their stories and their experience. So um, it's no no longer something we have to hide with. Um, You know, toxic shame is a a real thing. And um, part of coming out um, in the the Times article was 
releasing some of the shame I felt. Um, and after it dropped, I really did feel kind of vulnerable and naked. And um, I wanted to support the cause, but not up front and center. But um, now it's two years later and, you know, the landscape has really changed and there's, you know, a lot more, um, you know, um, attention given to um, the troubled teen industry, um, gay conversion therapy programs, wilderness boot camps. And um, as a survivor of the troubled teen industry, it's, I feel a par part of my personal responsibility to say, A, this happened to us, B, it was not okay, and C, we're gonna take the power back and nobody's gonna ever have control over us again. Um, okay, everyone, so we're gonna be shifting this next segment um, towards some really graphic and uh, disturbing uh, accounts of sexual assault. And Liz Boysick is bravely taking this opportunity to come forward and name her abuser, the music man. She was in the New York Times and um, had noted that she had been sexually abused in the infamous barn that was located on the property. And this is really her moment of coming forward and telling people what happened to her. And music man has been infamously known for um, sexually being inappropriate and or abusing boys there are child victim act cases on file multiple of multiple cases filed here in new york name music man as a perpetrator or an accomplice too so uh liz boysick is very unique in this case as she is the first female sexual victim to come forward naming the music man and she is to the best of her ability going to try and uh, describe what happened to her in the hopes that other survivors hear her story and either unfortunately relate, but perhaps they will have enough bravery and strength to come forward. And if anyone knew Liz a year or two or three ago, to be at this point to actually come forward is at, like nothing short of badassery and bravery and complete courage. So I ask everyone to be respectful and hold space for her as she tries to share an account, voluntarily share um, her story. So I'm going to put my phone on mute and Liz Boysick, the floor is yours. And we are encouraging others if they have been abused by the music man to join the black parade. As you know, I'm Liz Boysick, and I was at the Family Foundation School, and I um, am the first female to report sexually being sexually assaulted by the music man. And um, I'm sorry if some of this is going to sound weird, but I'm like literally breaking out in hives right now um, <laughs> about talking about this because it's obviously something I've only discussed with. Um, you know, close, you know, friends and some family members. Um, but other than that, I haven't uh, been talking about this. And um, I hope you guys can understand if this is a little disjointed or um, choppy. Um, uh, when uh, we arrived or, you know, when I arrived at the family school, there were you know, two very high member staffs, um, the, the principal and the music man. And um, I know that she knew that the mu music man was abusing us. And I feel that um, she was participating in making people, children available um, to be sexually abused uh, by the music man because uh, the music man provided the family school with um, something they needed, which was credibility. And when you have, um, you know, pictures of, you know, musicals and chorus stuff and, you know, trophies for choral competitions, you know, it brings some legitimacy to 
an otherwise illegitimate school. And um, I feel that uh, Music Man was invaluable to the structure of the cult that we lived in and was able to operate freely within the confines of um, the very isolated um, campus we had in the middle of the Catskills. Um, initially, when I first got to the family school, um, my parents made it known to the, the administration that I was really into music. And, um, you know, at the time I had been, um, you know, taking voice lessons and singing opera and doing all that stuff. And uh, I immediately was exploited for those talents and put in um, all of the singing groups and um, either by design or accident, um, I was being put in contact with my abuser um, for, um, when we were practicing for choral, um, performances for almost 20 hours extra a week outside of school. Uh, uh, and, uh, from the very beginning, this staff member was highly sexualized and would talk about, um, his masturbation habits and how he almost um, got in a car accident while masturbating while eating a cheeseburger. And um, that's a pretty famous story that is known throughout all of the, you know, times that, that the staff member was there. And um, I'm not sure what made me, uh, you know, prime <laughs> I don't know I, how do you say it? I'm not sure what made me like uh, like uh, enticed I'm not sure what the word is I'm not why he sure why this man was attracted to me but he was and in the beginning um, he would make comments and ask me about my personal masturbation habits and um, he would go on long rants um, and choral practice about how uh, our um, sound was not pure enough and that, you know, it, it wasn't pure because people were masturbating. And then he would like go through the line like of people pointing at them. Did you masturbate? Did you masturbate? And then if you had like rosy cheeks just for being embarrassed about an adult talking to you in this very uh, derogatory way, um, you know, you were bullied and, and you, you were said that, you know, you're thinking about sex, you're, you're not, you know, paying attention. And then he would also do this thing where if a girl had, you know, larger breasts, he was so delusional that he would say that these you know, 14, 15, 16 year old girls were actually, you know, pointing their breasts at him in order to entice him um, sexually and would shame regularly, you know, girls in chorus and accuse them of doing something that they weren't. Um, so in the meantime, you know, within, you know, a couple months of me being there, um, it went from, you know, talking about all the sexual stuff to touching and, um, you know, grabbing my ass and um, doing some other things like that would either make you think that it could be accidental or like, you know, we were so trained to, I don't know, trust these people like, uh, you know, completely that like, even though I know what he was doing by just touching me was wrong I didn't really know if it was wrong if that makes any sense because so much of the the normal I knew before you know the day I stepped in the family um you know when the your your rules change so dramatically you, you begin to um question reality and um you know 
I have to say my abuser was very smart. He made it sure that to never, you know, um, be seen with me, um, you know, privately, you know, or just, you know, one-on-one he would abuse me. Um, and then, um, I would have to go and, um, go to prayer circle and act like nothing happened. And, um, it was just torture. It was psychological torture. And, you know, he sodomized me and this happened in the barn and also in the dorm room, um, as we were forced to live in this man's basement. Um, sorry. For me to explain the next part, I have to explain why I haven't had a single night of decent sleep in the last 20 years. When I was um, at the family, uh, my dorm was in the basement of the music man's house. And the only thing separating uh, 16 girls that lived in his basement from him was a door. And supposedly this door had a lock. But, you know, I don't believe there was one because obviously um, in my time into the family, I was awoken by the music man and told to go into this like closet boot closet thing and once I was in that boot closet I was brutally sodomized and I then had to go back and sleep in that bed with a thin door knowing my abuser is literally right overhead and the terror that came with that was indescribable I used to feel before this happened some type of safety when we would reach the dorm you know me you know I couldn't be brought up at the dorm or at least it wasn't a common occurrence to be brought up at the dorm so you know in my traumatized mind something you know my my little piece of sacred space was defiled and from that time on, I literally haven't slept a peaceful night's sleep since that day. And, you know, this would happen again. And, you know, I wasn't just abused once or twice. It was multiple times throughout the entire stay um, of the 408 days I spent there. And it wasn't just that but before my 18th birthday um the head of the school um a really sick individual um told me that if i left on my 18th birthday that you know i was going to end up dead or in jail or a prostitute or in a psych ward whatever but Um, And that also that same meeting about what I was going to do when I turned 18, I was literally threatened um, by the head of the school at that time. And she was going through my binder with my information, my, you know, parents addresses and all that stuff. And I'll never forget the sadistic look on her face as she licked her finger and paged through that binder with all my personal information and told me that, um, you know, nobody would believe me if I got any ideas about, you know, saying anything about what was happening. And, um, you know, the, the, the threat was real in my mind. I, I fully thought that they were capable of hurting my family. And for, the next um, almost 10 years, I would tell nobody about my sexual abuse. Nobody. And I did that as much protection for me as for the people I loved because I truly felt 
you know, having been brainwashed that the, the staff at this school or, you know, so-called school, but it's not, it's a cult, um, you know, had real life, you know, consequences and real life, um, you know, implications to my family. And um, we were silenced. And I know there are other victims that were silenced. And I know that probably somebody is listening to this podcast right now and saying, holy shit, I'm not the only one, you know, and it's been really um, difficult coming out as the only female survivor of this guy because he is known to have um, preferences for, you know, teenage boys. Um, but I feel, you know, whoever was available and, you know, was in the right place at the right time was, was fair game. And um, to any of the people um, out there who were abused by the music man or any other staff, um, you know, now is really our time as sexual child uh, sexual assault victims to come forward and and demand the justice that we deserve you know it doesn't matter if it's been 20 years it doesn't matter if it's been 40 years um, if you were under 18 and abused in the state of new york you have until january to um, file a, a civil suit against your abusers and uh, i hope that in some small way this um, podcast may give um, someone the courage to speak up and say, hey, this happened to me too. And hey, I'm not going to let these people get away with it. And I'm not going to live in the mental bondage anymore. And I'm taking my power back as a survivor. And to you guys that are hearing this stuff for the first time, um, I'm sorry that, that, you know, that you have to hear this because I know that we know the troubled teen industry is a fucked up place, but I'm not sure people really understand how terrible the family school was and um, time to make it known. And um, I hope that this helps in some way. But as far as the grooming, I know, so I know that you brought it up and I just want to like point into uh, one particular incident that is pretty haunting for me personally. Like I, I get, it's just, um, per your point about other adult staff members and this principal knowing being complicit and proactively um, assisting a prolific pedophile in creating this grooming breeding ground for this kind of abuse. Um, there was a situation with a slow dance and do you want to, are you comfortable relaying that to the audience that doesn't exist, but it's in our head right now? Yeah. And I don't know why this is like, you know, harder for me to divulge, like other than this was like the most uh, diabolical thing you could do to someone, which was, I was being sexually abused by this man in power and um, I had to have contact with him because I was in all the music things and um, he made me um, so dance with him in front of the, the chorus to like, you know, say that he was demonstrating something, but n nothing ever felt more humiliating than that and in a way I felt like um he was trying to like maybe romanticize in his head what was going on um you know and I found that very disturbing and I still really like that that was like a huge violation to not only be abusing me behind closed doors but then to openly um you know, call me out like that. And, um, you know, just always the teacher's pet, always making me, you know, perform like a trained monkey. And um, it was very demoralizing. And to this day, I say it was worse than the original abuse because it was a total breach of reality 
and we're we're all living in we were already living in a twilight zone but this was like for a long time afterwards i could never like really understand why he would choose to do that you know when he had been so careful to not be alone with me me um you know like you know try to avoid being seeing alone with me but then to do that and you know front of everybody like it it just was like so dirty and you know i have to live with that i have to like like you know live with that feeling of that guy like being like you know held like that like it's it's really disgusting and demoralizing and part of his sick game of wanting to be in power at all times and I don't really think any of the abuse was really about sex as much as it was about power. And, um, you know, I really felt that the staff there, not just music man, but the staff in general really got off on um, completely breaking down these young kids, some as young as 12, you know, just being completely dehumanized and, um, like there's stuff that I haven't even talked about. Like there could be a whole nother podcast of, of this stuff <laughs> that I haven't even mentioned yet. But I mean, just to imagine that there's, you know, thousands of people around the country that are willing to work in these places that regularly, you know, break these kids, break them physically, spiritually, emotionally. And, you know, I hate to say it, we did experience, you know, physical sexual abuse there, but the worst abuse that was ever occurred at um, our program and any troubled teen industry is, you know, the mental that we have to live, the mental stuff, the, the way they berated us and, you know, constantly like the message was, you're not okay, you're not going to be okay, your life is going to be a failure. You know, there was no being there was no chance to be your authentic self. So, you know, we're in this position where we're constantly having to confess to imaginary things and make up imaginary problems. And there's no way to leave a place like that where you're so thoroughly brainwashed um, without any damage. And, and that's not okay. Uh, so I'm going to wipe the tear. Uh, it's not okay. <laughs> <laughs> and um, correct me if I'm wrong, Liz's, but other pets of the music men, aren't we, aren't some of our sisters and brothers already gone that were pets? Of yes. Us? It's multiple. Yeah. Sur- yeah. And his patterns are the same from what we can uh, extract from cases that are on file. Um, his, uh, I guess if we were going to profile his behavior, um, slow dance uh, tells us a few things. Uh, one, that he was comfortable. Two, that he was too, I, and I, I hate the word powerless, but he's a sick, sick individual. He was um, reliving or um, trying to have a corrective emotional experience and was using Liz Boisick to live out a fantasy of his, um, meaning to have a romantic or what he would view as a romantic slow dance, um, almost mimicking being at prom or, you know, let's face it, he was likely a social outcast um, and he was an odd duck to begin with. So for him to mimic a very, normal romanticized fantasy in front of other students tells us that he's comfortable that he is reliving a fantasy that he was fucking with Liz's head by trying to normalize that they were in some kind of mutual relationship Uh, especially in a dance and a slow dance in particular the male is often leading that dance So it's also a display, extreme display of power and authority, Um, but it's uh, in their mind sickly softened and he most certainly um, 
I wasn't there for the slow dance. I don't need to be, but you bet your ass that he probably finished that slow dance and went and masturbated in a closet somewhere to release the fantasy um, that he had created. And, and that's what pedophiles, they do. It, it, pedophilia is not simply the sexual deviant act. It is their response to their behaviors. Um, and we don't know if he took pleasure or pain in punishing himself afterwards for what he had done, or if he was too indulgent in the pleasure center of his brain, knowing what he was doing to a young child. Um, you know, we're not in his head. It could have been either or, or both. Um, but pedophilia is not just the deviant sexual act. They act out in a variety of ways. And he is a man who lacks great conscience, conscience, lacks remorse, and is unable to control his impulses to sexually prey on young children male and female he does not discriminate which is an interesting category pedophiles generally have a preference the most dangerous i'll go on record to say are those like music man who have no preference except for their preferred characteristic swipe right is vulnerability and opportunity and and that is what and who music man is Anybody else slightly triggered by the connotations of the use of the term man for a character such as this? Like, you know, uh, because I knew this quote unquote man as well personally. Um, and there was there was nothing in that masculine identity, what I see as a man or who I experience as that. This was a this is a really pathetic character. Um, and, uh, you know, if everybody's cool with it, I'm definitely using a picture of him for cover art so people can actually see what we're talking about, because I think you can just see it looking at him exactly the extent of the character that's there. Right. Or lack thereof. I mean, he had no character. Yeah. Um, but he definitely has traits that he was unable and unwilling to control. And um, what better playground uh, to have than the family school drop dead center and 80 something acres away from the world where he could be a superstar. And again, they took a nobody, you know, uh, a music school prodigy and they linked him up with kids and gave him free rent. So, you know, it became a playground. And and Liz Boysick is, is not the only one. And, and you, yeah, and it, and you guys like just so it's very very fucking clear. This was a complete open secret, if there is such a thing. Everybody mm -hmm. on campus knew what this man was doing. Everyone, okay. And I really feel that um, staff, you know, higher ups were well aware of what he was doing, and do you know giving him free reign on us so he could you know perform in the propaganda um you know of that school and um you know this is no secret this is this is known fact like you could look this guy up for the last 20 years and you will find everything about him on the internet there's not one nice thing there to say about him and they're all the same this is a highly sexualized person. He is obsessed with talking about sex. I mean, just think about how odd it is as like a 16-year-old kid to roll up in a supposed boarding school and then have people, you know, almost twice your age asking you about your personal masturbation habits and stuff. I mean, th this is like crazy. Like, this is cuckoo stuff. Like, the the way the school operated was insane. I mean, I mean, it's incredible what the, these people have gotten away with so far. And it's, I can't say it enough. We, we have to make these people accountable. And just like we were, you know, like paraded around and forced to take our, our moral inventory all the time, you know, the tables are turned. You know, these people are going to have to make a searching and fearless inventory of their own. And they're going to have to look in the mirror and live with the choices they've made. And it may have taken 20 or 30 years, but we, we've came forward and we're not going anywhere. So 
we've like you're the eighth family school person to come on the podcast so we've really um most of our listeners already kind of have a visual idea of you know the bones the structure and some of the daily life of stuff and and some of that um house brother and myself had talked at length I'm just like like let's just go let's just do this and Liz Ionelli had also brought up the kittens when she was at the program um are you comfortable talking about the animal stuff? Because as an animal rescuer, like, I feel like, you know, um, this kind of trauma, like if they'd done these kinds of things in the Boy Scouts, like we would have had this conversation 30 years ago. Yeah. I mean, one thing besides um, having to be forced to, you know, attack our peers was the the, the second worst thing for me as an animal lover was being forced to abuse the, the animals that we were taking care of. And um, when I was there, every family had a pig and, you know, part of like, you know, your treatment or punishment um, was taking care of these pigs. And we were literally forced to um, feed these pigs pork and, um, you know, bacon and, and sausage and, and to watch those pigs be cannibalized. It, it really, I, it disturbs me and, and it, and it, I feel guilty personally to this day that I did that to, you know, something that can't speak for itself. And it's very disturbing. I mean, other survivors at least can, you know, speak up when they feel ready, but you know, to do this to an animal and to be basically feeding these pigs their friends, it, it was very disturbing. And it was very disturbing, you know, when they would say that they would take these animals after we fed them for so long to, you know, get, um, you know, process and everything. And they would be like, oh, this is your buddy, you know? And it was, you know, like psychological torture having, they made us name these animals, they made us take care of them. Um, you know, and I say take care of, I mean, that that's obviously kind of gross because we were forced to cannibalize these pigs. And, uh, you know, we did the best we could having been powerless and, you know, in the middle of the woods, but, you know, to save a few bucks to not feed, you know, uh, the pigs the proper, uh, you know, food or whatever they need. Um, and instead just give them the slop that was less left over for the meals. It was just very very disturbing to me. And, um, you know, I, I still feel guilty about it 20 years later. And, you know, I, I, I feel bad about that. I really do. <laughs> Liz Ionelli, um, I wonder if there are listeners who are like feeding pigs, pigs they knew is really not a big deal because the pigs didn't know the pigs. Um, from a psychology perspective, <sighs> Is there any chance that the people at the family school that were forcing Liz Boyzik and other students to do this, it was just like a random thing. This was just the leftover food. There was no psychological intent. They didn't know what they were doing. Like, is that possible? No, not not at all. Um, This is a a classic play on mind control. Um, Not only does it represent the, the children, and then I loosely associate them as students of this program, um, being forced or or forced to bond with an animal, the the bonding with animals is one of the strongest bonds, other than with your own children, really, that you can have. So to take children under extreme emotional distress and introduce them to a comfort measure, and then psychologically mess with them and to re reframe the narrative and then feed them the very animals they were forced to bond with sent a very clear message that um, anything was disposable. And a known trait of sociopaths, true sociopaths, uh, many of the uh, research that's based on sociopaths' behavior are identified by um, harming animals in childhood and progressing forward. So these were very sociopathic tendencies to have children bond with animals, then be fed the animals that they have been caring for, breaking that bond, causing issues of abandonment and um, guilt and fear, 
and then having to ingest that, you know, and as we know, the family, if children vomited, they'd have to eat it. Like there was no choice. Like, so, and I know that that happened for a fact, even, um, and Liz Boisek can give a quick story on that, but, um, the, the psychological warfare is really what took place. And then to have the, the students have to then feed the bacon or sausage of the animals that they raised and bonded with back to the new set of animals. This was a very uh, torturous cycle that took an extreme mental toll. And like Liz Boisek said, 20 years later, you know, the guilt and shame is still there. So uh, there's no way that, that that action was created by accident. Yeah, and to be quite honest, I mean, I literally just cried about those pigs like a couple of weeks ago. Like it, it came, you know, I, I've known that happened, but, it, you know, I, I never really thought about it. And then one day it just like, I, I mean, it really hit me how diabolical it truly is to um, force, you know, young children to bond with these animals and then basically desecrate them in such a terrible way um and i felt like it was like a double entendre we were powerless uh you know from the treatment we were getting from the staff and the pigs were you know had to accept what we did to them you know they they were you know powerless over what care they received it was just like a, a big you know mind fuck and i i really truly regret that to to this very day well, Liz, I and Ellie, <clears throat> for these things that we did under duress and coercion and for survival as children, um, there's, I, I understand there's still a lot of guilt and shame. Uh, I understand this personally, uh, right? But like, how, what is that psychologically? Because like, how is Liz Boyzik even responsible? Like she had no other choice. We all know what they would have done to her if she didn't. Right. And so it's really, um, uh, under the category of forcible coercion. She, she had no choice but to commit these heinous acts and had full awareness of what she was doing, but they, by design, left them powerless to change the narrative or, or not comply. So that has long-lasting effects. And the same way that they, if it's any reflection of how the family approached treating animals, you can only imagine then you know, animals aren't really able to give any feedback other than affection or pain. And the same applications were applied to the students at the, the program because you either, you know, were shown gaslighting or uh, given the impression that you had a moment of safety, perhaps, or that maybe somebody cared about you, but it was it was like fake. And then the other side of it was that we were all being tortured and abused by the staff. So if you're willing to, to mistreat animals, the feedback from children is much more extensive and the pleasure center of those causing pain, um, their brains would light up basically because as children, we gave much more of an emotional response um, that was more visible and verbal. So it's really represents the multitude of the mind control and the debauchery that, that they incited for, for everyone. Yeah. And just a reminder, you guys, we all had to eat everything on our plate, regardless of our previous dietary restrictions or preferences. Um, and so hunger strikes like my own were pretty common. Um, and especially when, the pig meat came back when the pig meat came back and was served to the family the first day a lot of the kids that were would later actually study veterinary science and things of that nature um went on hunger strikes were put on exile and work sanction and yada yada um hey uh liz boisek uh was there a little like um whisper from other liz over here that you're also one of my buddies in the eat your own vomit brigade <laughs> well, no, actually, I'm not. I, I just literally witness it right next to me. And obviously, that's like a common tactic that was used against us in the family school. And um, I, besides, you know, being forced to eat things that we didn't like, and ha then vomiting it up, and then having to eat the vomit back 
uh, and watching that it's fucking terrible and terrifying to watch that as a uh, teenager I mean as anybody but especially as a teenager I just remember how powerless I felt sitting next to this person um, who never ate chicken and their whole life and they were being forced to eat chicken pot pie I really remember that it was like um, yesterday and um, you know he tried to keep it down but he couldn't and so you know he threw up and then it was like you're gonna eat that and you know, we really didn't have any choice. And also like, you know, I, I don't know what's been talked on the podcast before, but, you know, food deprivation was real at the family school. Um, I lost 50 pounds when uh, within the first six months that I was at uh, the family school. And um, I was getting so desperate for food because, you know, we were also being forced to you know, do manual labor, forced to do exercises. And then they would, you know, you know, for me, they, they gave me half portions. And so we're expending all this energy. And I mean, I was literally starving. And so I did, I, I did steal mayonnaise packets and, and eat them and hide them in my, my pillowcase at night to try and get some extra calories. Like, um, you know, and then I also was on the restrictive um, diet when I was in isolation and um, getting out of in isolation uh, where it was um, plain mapo um, for breakfast and uh, tuna, uh, plain tuna on an English muffin and a thing of fruit, uh, you know, like a fruit and a glass of water for, you know, uh, lunch and dinner. And, um, you know, I, I really... Uh, I still have food issues to this day, um, you know, regarding, you know, the, the deprivation that I experienced, um, you know, in my, you know, first experience of ever really truly feeling hunger, um, you know, where your, your stomach is hurting and it's keeping you up at night because you're so hungry, um, you know, and th that's also another way that they ex exerted control over us was um, the food and also the sleep. Um, I don't think I slept one night sleep um, at that place. Um, you know, uh, this, you know, you, you were never safe. And most of my time there was spent wondering when the next hit was coming because we knew it was coming. We just didn't know when. I'm not sure if many of you know how long the New York Times article took to, um, you know, make happen. But just so you know, behind the, the scenes, that article took uh, a full nine months to um, make come forward. And um, I'd like to talk about the pictures that were in the article. Um, if you saw the um, two-page spread inside the magazine it showed the barn and um that was where the abuse began for me and uh mike wilson put that there as a big fuck you to uh music man and um honestly i should thank him because i hope every day since that article article came out two years ago that music man has been waiting for somebody to knock, knock on his door and ruin his world because He's on notice. We're coming for you and we're taking back what's ours. You know, uh, I, I know that it's like, as you had said, it's uh, he's known for a prevalence for teenage boys. Uh, I've spoken with a lot of my brothers about their experience with the music man um, and his predatory shit from the sexaholics group that he set up. Um, I, I don't know if you listened through my um, sitting in my car for eight hours episodes, but I was actually spared your abuser because a choir star that did my intake let me know that even though my parents had sent me here for this awesome choir stuff, because I'd been in show choir for years, yada, yada, that I no longer yeah. did choir and saved me. So thank you, Lisa, again, for saving me from him. But I think you're going to save a lot more kids from him because forgive me if I'm wrong, 
But even after the family school, uh, hasn't he gone on to continue attempting to work with children? Listen, the one one of the biggest reasons that I came forward, um, besides getting my say, I found out that that sicko was working with children in a different state, and that bothered me uh, too tremendously. And um, I wouldn't be surprised if there are children in other states that have been abused um, as he's used his musical talents uh, to constantly put himself, um, you know, in, in with young children, whether it be boys or, or girls or whatever, whoever is available to him. He has a sickness and there is no cure for that sickness. And um you know, there had been times over this really almost 20 year period where I felt incredibly guilty because um, the day I ran away from the family school with nothing but the clothes on my back, um, I was picked up by an officer um, after I had waited in a ditch um, at the end of March, um, lying down in the ditch waiting um, for the church van to go by because I didn't want to be kidnapped and taken back into to the school. Uh, so it's the end of March, uh, March 25th, 2001 was my freedom day. It was three days um, after my birthday. And I said, fuck this. I had enough. I left with just the clothes on my back. And I knew that, the church um, choir van that um, I used to go in uh, to Hancock to sing at the Catholic church every Sunday would be coming by. And in the past I've seen, you know, been in that van while we took people that ran away back to the school. So uh, I had a very real fear of being kidnapped and um, I laid in a drainage and I waited because I knew the van would be coming soon and like literally peeking my head out of the drainage ditch. I see the van slow at the end of the street and, uh, you know, it slowed down It stayed a second and then it left. And like, I waited probably like a half an hour later just to even like get up and to like walk down there because as far as I knew, <laughs> you know, they were everywhere. I, I, I didn't know. I was, you know, very paranoid at the time. And um, anyways, I walked down to that main route. I think it's 97. And I was eventually picked up by um, a Hancock um, police officer. And um, he's like, you know, the school asked me to take you back. Uh, but obviously you're 18 and it's up to you. Um, and I said, I'm not going back. And he said, well, I can't just leave you here. So like the only thing I can do for you is offer you a ride into town to McDonald's in Hancock. And um, so <laughs> I am in the back of the police car now and the cops like saying stuff like, you know, what goes on there? Like we're constantly returning kids there. Like people run away from, uh, you know, there and we have to pick them up and bring them back a lot and and that was true um people kids would run away and the cops would find them and bring them back like it was routine and the cop asked me um like you know hey what goes on there like why are so many kids running away and being like i think extremely like shell-shocked i um just remember like repeating over and over it wasn't good. Like, like almost like, like a mantra, like it, it wasn't good. Like what was happening there. And, um, he was like trying to get me to elaborate. And I, uh, you know, honestly just didn't have the words to, to verbalize what my experience was. Um, like you said, cognitive dissonance, I, up until, you know, the last probably, you know, six years or, or so starting to call this program what it really is a cult, you know, but before that it was a boarding school. So when I had told people in the past, 
boarding school, they had this notion of like a rich, nice boarding school where everything's like hunky dory. And what we really were at was a cult where um, children were moved around across state, state lines for s sexual abuse and um, human sex trafficking. So, you know, uh, I felt like I had to do something. And even if it was late, I still came forward. And that's what I'm doing again. I'm not sure there is a late. I'm sorry, go ahead. I, I just <clears throat> morally, I felt like I had the obligation to come forward again, not just for me, but for other people that don't have a voice yet. Well, and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, Liz Ionelli, but 10 years is pretty standard or 15 years for me and a lot of others to even start reframing what happened to us. Generally, trauma, and especially in the, the a, a child's brain, biologically, brains were not done fully forming yet. So with the uh, risk of sounding like a complete nerd, the hypercampus and the amygdala part of your brain, those are really the control centers for fight or flight. Um, they control how much adrenaline and cortisol and stress hormones are released into your body. Um, so our brains were hardwired very young um, to respond to trauma. And so in, as, essentially our brain, the switch was left on and many of us have struggled to turn it off. Um, but it's a biological component. So trauma rears its ugly head generally you know there's no specific right time that it comes out but it can be suppressed i mean ptsd can have an acute onset it can have a delayed onset um you know there are especially uh complex ptsd there is a very delayed onset of uh understanding not only symptoms but understanding of where this behavior and pattern and things are coming from. So there's no instantaneous really response. And it takes many survivors of sexual trauma years, decades to uh, not only recognize that what happened to them was abuse, but to actually come forward is another monumental step as well. So, you know, that's kind of where I would leave it. Yeah. yeah, I want to. Yeah, it's this is pretty huge. And I know that a lot of the reason why you're coming forward in this way so publicly right now is to let other survivors know that they're not alone and hopefully encourage and inspire them to stand up with everyone else who was abused either by the music man or by someone else within the treble teen industry or by anyone else within the state of New York at any time. Um, and so that's pretty incredible. And thank you for that. Oh, thank you. Mm. And uh, if this pathetic little half note of a music man is listening right now, do either of you have a message for him? I would just say, I hope you go to bed every night living in terror like I have for the last 20 years. I hope you get up every night and check your doors to see if they're locked every night. I hope you know that the time is coming for you to answer for your actions. We, we may be a little late, but we're going to get what is ours. What about you? Other yeah, ones? I'd like to add to that. Um, and, mm -hmm. and, and Liz Boisek, you're, you're right. And then, and I, I hope all of those things, and I'm, I'm trying to actually refrain myself from saying anything that will end up getting me in a, a restraining order. But if, if music man or anyone, let me just do this two parts, music man, if, if you are listening to this, um, for your last tissue, I, I just want you to know that time's up and that your 30 year or more reign of terror is coming to an end. And the impulses that you, not control the punishment that you bestow upon yourself 
um, the, 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 the way you've operated, it, it, it's an, in a civilized society, you are nothing more than a pathetic example of a human being who abused children for your own self-serving pleasure. And you've hurt my friends. You have, you have destroyed, destroyed lives and you can't hide forever. So I I won't even wish you good luck because there's no luck to be wished. Um, You are going to have to answer for the crimes that you've committed against humanity and against children. And we all know your name and you know it. And you and I had our moment two years ago. I'm not going to say anything more than that, but you, you know where I stand and you know who you are and you can't escape. And I'd like to say to any of the, the victims that may be out there listening to this, that music man sexually abused, that you have the power and the ability to come forward and name him because Others have named him as well. You are not going to be the first. The firsts have already gone. And, and that's really why the Join the Black Parade is, is really the tagline because we're joining forces and coming together and we're all stepping in line behind each other in force to call out our abusers. And if he was your abuser or one of your abusers, you have the right to name him in a court of law. And that window is closing quickly. So if you're hearing this and you were abused by Music Man, now is the time. And um, contact information, if you need to be directed in any way um, or given guidance on what to do next, um, icusurvivor at gmail.com is your best way to get that information. Thank you. All right. This was um, incredibly brave of you. Liz Boyzik, um, I don't have words to just to thank you for this. Um, I'd love you just to wrap it up and close us out with your final message. I just want to actually. I'll go um, first. Can I go first? Uh, oh. <laughs> um, I'd like to. So you could go I'd like, first. I would like to close it out with, as I'm eating cookies, not a hamburger. I would like to close it out with fuck that guy. <laughs> okay, fuck that guy. That's it. That's all I have to say. Fuck him. Ditto. Yeah. Ditto. And I'm Liz Boysick, and I'm breaking code silence. Over and out. Thank you for sticking with us um, and listening to these testimonials of the music man from the family school in Hancock, New York. If you or anyone you know has been personally affected with sexual abuse in New York, you do have this one-time lift on the statute of limitations. Please email Liz if you need further assistance in how to litigate that. Uh, Please rate and write a review for our podcast on Apple so that other people can find us. And please share this content. Talk to people. If you're in New York and you're willing to help us, please reach out. Everything that we've been able to accomplish with the family school, with Circle of Hope, with each of these individual programs and each individual pedophile is only because of survivors and supporters uniting together against these dangerous monsters in our own backyards. And we need you now more than ever. So thank you for your allyship and your advocacy. And we look forward to seeing you on the front lines.